Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. This morning, uh, we'll be talking to two, two guests. I'll be talking to two guests. My first guest is Jill Iskell, and her new book is called Hearts on Fire. Jill is an educator and activist. She has a doctorate in education and is president of the I or the IF or the IF Hummingbird Foundation, a family foundation which was established in 1989 to support domestic and international efforts to strengthen democracy and reduce the social, economic, and educational inequalities that threaten it. That's a big job. And in her book, she talks about 14 extraordinary individuals who tell their stories and who have done exactly that. My second guest, is Dr. Stan Tatkin, a psychologist, and uh, it's Valentine's Day, so we're going to be talking about relationships and his new book, Wired for Love, How Understanding Your Partner's Brain and Attachment Style Can Help You Diffuse Conflict and Build a Secure Relationship. But first, we have Jill Iskall. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jill. Oh, thank you for um, having me on. And that your next guest sounds like I'm going to stay tuned to listen to what he has to say. <laughs> well, he's going to get down to the individuals, and you're talking about the world. So, I, you know, the global uh, effect of being able to to help people. But your book is a great book, and really, uh, thanks. Yeah, inspiring story. So, I want to really talk about, I guess you know, several of the, the individuals that you interview in the book, we can't talk about all of them, but the one that's kind of tugged at my heart. But um, before we do that, I want to hear from you. Purpose of writing the book, aside from what I said, and, um, you know, what made you d- decide to write this book and to interview these people, and, and, and where did all that come from in terms of your own personal story? Uh, well, thanks for this opportunity yeah. again, Catherine. And um, I decided to write the book in after 2008. I thought that the... Uh, as, as we all did, that the, the financial crisis uh, combined with the 9-11, which was preceded it by many years, though, had deeply affected the American psyche. And um, people were walking around feeling like there's no hope. They had lacked, we were lacking faith in our political, political um, and global leaders and our institutions. And yet I was feeling pretty optimistic because I've led this very, I've had this very blessed life in the past 20 years where I've gotten to know people like the people in this book who have inspired me and given me hope about the future because of the work they're doing. And I'm in awe of them. And here it was 2008, and um, in 2011, I turned 65, 
and I was thinking about the fact that it was time for me to share my feelings and thoughts about the future, uh, particularly about the future based on the work of these wonderful, wonderful individuals. So um, I decided to write the book, and at 65, I feel very proud. It was my first one, and I think there, there's the lesson here is that certainly um, carrying a uh, Medicare card, Medicaid Medicare card and getting Social Security doesn't mean that, you know, life is over. As a matter of fact, many beginnings. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, that song, it's only just begun, it sounds yeah. like, for you. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And this How did you a- get, and I didn't mention this in the beginning, Jill, but you have, I mean, this is, uh, you know, an extraordinary book, and you got President Bill Clinton to write the foreword. Well, I've had, I, I was very active in politics during those years of the Clinton administration and when Hillary became, ran for Senate and, um, and, and during that, uh, the primary as well. And so I got to know them and, uh, I mustered up my courage and decided to ask him if he would do the forward because in a way, the two of them, uh, their, their lives were representative and exemplified. What I admire the most in the world is people of enormous gifts and talents using them on behalf of improving the quality of life for others. And although he is who he is, larger than life, former president, running Clinton Foundation and Clinton Global, he can do and tell these stories and bring people together at a level that is breathtaking in terms of its scope and impact. And I felt that what I was doing was, was something very similar but at another level and wanted to pierce the bubble that those of us who know about the social change sector um, and feel so passionate about it, we, we, we talk to one another, but we need to get it out there so more and more and more people join what we believe is a movement for good. Yeah, and this um, movement for good, as you've outlined really in the book with the different stories, you each one of these individuals, and I will say young individuals, um, they all come from very different backgrounds, ethnicity, very diverse group of people, and yet they all have this kind of like, as you say, I think in the beginning of the book, to whom much has been given, much is expected, and a, a lot of these um, individuals in these stories, it's not necessarily that they had a lot of money, but they had a lot of talent, and they were all, it seemed to me, very bright, very smart, kind of destined to be leaders if they chose mm. to take that path. Mm. Yeah, well, you, you say it very, very well. You know, I, I love that you re- read it the way you did. I've been on some of these interviews. Not everybody has, has, has read it as thoughtful as you have, but um, this, uh, you, you really seem to get it. What, one of the things that we tried to do was to get a variety of people who came from very different backgrounds. So, yes, in fact, many of them do not come from, they come from very uh, backgrounds that were very disadvantaged, like um, Andisha Farid, who was born in Afghanistan during the Russian invasion and then was spent her very early years in an Iranian refugee camp. And at some point when she is in a Pakistani refugee camp, she gets an education and she makes a commitment at that point, even though she had witnessed extraordinary, extraordinary hardship, witnessed her brother being shot at by Iranian guards and killed at the border. I mean, just really, really, really awful. She felt privileged because she got an education. And so she made a commitment 
that she was going to try and get as many children as she could educate Afghan children so that they could reach their potential and contribute to her country, building a healthier country. And today she's 27 years old. She's married with a child of her own, and she runs 11 orphanages serving 600 children throughout Afghanistan. So absolutely not privileged, but yes, as in fact, as you said, talented, gifted, but felt privileged. Jill, you said in the beginning of her story that this was, I don't know if you said this was the most difficult one to write about, but our story to write about, but there was something in her that touched something in you. Well, that, you know, here, here we are, I mean, you know, as Americans, and, and I don't think any of us can even imagine the enormity of the kind of childhood deprivation that she went through. You know, um, as I say in the book, she lacked the most basic kind of necessities, clean water, sanitation, education. Um, she had love, and that makes a huge difference. But, but she, when she talked about witnessing these Iranian guards, as her father was taking the family back into Afghanistan across the border from Iran, and he borrowed a car and the last group that he took over, it, within the last group that he took over, was her brother in the back seat of a car. The Iranians were shooting into the air, and um, he was shot and killed. And at that time, um, she said her heart was covered with ashes, but it's now on fire. And that's where the title of the book came from. So I feel very close to her. I feel close to all of them. But there's something in particular about her fortitude and grace and joy in living now, that is an inspiration. It is, and she's such a young woman. What did you say, 27 years she's old? 27. Yeah. And, you, and you touched, I think, education. That's another one of the themes, obviously, that goes throughout these stories. Absolutely. Edu- I don't know if you said education is equality or qu- equality is education, or is that the same thing? Yeah. Um, well, it's certainly... What education does is, is, is I, you read the mission of our foundation, it's really to level the playing field and give people opportunities that normally wouldn't have them. I come from a background that I, you know, middle class and privileged um, now. We were able to run a foundation. I have a children. My, I have a 33-year-old son and a 31-year-old daughter. My son served in Iraq as a Marine after graduating from Cornell. But So he served, and my daughter is involved in things. But I always felt when I was raising my kids, and I hear that you have children too, three, three grown kids, that they got every opportunity we could give them. Somebody had a little learning disability. Just My daughter's dyslexic. They had tutors. Yeah. And my feeling and, and my husband's is that everybody should have the same shot, you know? Um, just because some have won the birth lottery doesn't mean that others don't have the same potential to blossom and bloom and hopefully make contributions as and, they you know, develop. I, I, I just want to interrupt you because I think no, that's go. a really important point. And, and, Jill, it's sort of I had this discussion with one of my youngest son, actually, who's twenty. Eight. And sometimes when you are, as you say, when you have all these privileges and, you know, okay, you have a learning disability, you don't do well in math, you get a tutor. Right. You know, you get you prep for your SATs or your right. GREs or whatever it is. 
sometimes that can hold you back because you become too complacent. It's too easy, and so you don't push yourself. There's that piece of it, too. And then it brings it up to the next, because, you know, you talked about Andesha, but Amy Lehman, who was the surgeon, who went to Rosemary Choate, she went to prep school, she, you know, she came from a, a more a well-heeled family, but she had a physical disability, but her grandmother even had a foundation, and yet, talk about what she was able to do. I mean, oh she my kind God. of came, yeah. <laughs> She's a real renegade. I mean, here she comes from a, yes, this very well-heeled family, and, uh, I think because she had a childhood illness, she very early on was felt marginalized but not demeaned, if you know what I mean. She wasn't in the in-group, that's for sure. And, but she was an individualist. And um, although she became a surgeon, her illness affected her in a way so she was no longer able to operate. She was a thoracic surgeon. Um, she, during her, her years at Choate and in college, she traveled. And one of the things that happened is that she traveled to the region of Lake Tanganyika, which is um, a, a, a very large lake. I think it's got the world's, I, I forget the data, but it's, it's one of the largest freshwater supplies of the world. But around the lake are, um, people live around this lake and they have, are cut off from access to good health care, to education, to you name it. And Amy visited it, and she decided that she wanted to build a floating clinic. And what she's been doing ever since then is learning every single thing possible about shipbuilding, bringing in partners, government partners, private sector partners, raising foundation money to build this floating clinic in order to bring health care to the people who surround the um, region of Lake Tanganyika. Um, and, and Lake Tanganyika is bordered by Tanzania and um, other countries in, I'm sorry, I'm just blanking. That's fine. You get it. Uh, and, and that's what she's doing, and she's turned her life over to this. She travels all the time to do it, and if I'm a betting woman, I would say that she will achieve this and build a hospital that will serve the people of that region and enable them to have the kind of health care that everybody deserves. And, you're, and you, you tell the story so well, but I, 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 you know, I keep thinking about these people, these leaders, and they, obviously they are leaders. They're the next generation. They're doing the good stuff. What, what, how does that, where does that come from? I mean, like, where do you think, I mean, you've interviewed all of these. Well, we can talk about a couple more of the interviews that you did. Otherwise, everyone has to go out and get the book. But, um, like, where does that spark come from? How do they know themselves so well? I mean, I, I keep going back to education, but there's also an innate... I mean, they are really, really intelligent young men and women, and they're really, really bright, uh, and they choose to just take the right path. Um, some have you know, it's a, it's a great question. Um, by the way, the countries, I'm sorry for your listeners, are Burundi, the Democratic, the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, Tanzania, and Zambia. Those are the countries that surround Lake Tanganyika. But your question is, is, is so insightful. For, for me, when we were choosing the people to go in to, to interview for this book, we first uh, interviewed people on the phone and then brought people to New York and filmed them. But the quality I was looking for was 
something that's not so tangible, that has something to do with um, something so, so deep within a person that when they see some, when they see an injustice, inequity, unfairness, people suffering, something gets triggered in them and they feel compelled to do something. And it's beyond being a social entrepreneur. It's something that's so deep, I, you know, it's almost got a spiritual component to it. It's with deep within their souls. And they're wonderfully deep and good and decent people of integrity. And um, I think... I, I think it's the highest level of moral development. Lawrence Kohlberg talked about empathy being the last um, of, of, of the rungs of the ladder when we talk about ethical development, the ability to identify with another and, and another's pain. And um, each and every one of these has a moment where something happens, where they're transformed by another's plight. So let me just take you for a minute to Vivian Nixon. Vivian was born and raised on Long Island to a modest family, but she was able to get a college degree, African-American background. She went to college, and she had always wanted to be an actress, and she got straight A's in theater. And she comes back, and she is home for, for a Thanksgiving vacation, and she's thrilled to tell her family that she's gotten straight A's and theater. She shows her mother her grades, and her mother says, What are you thinking, Vivian? You can't be an actress. You're too ugly. Well, you're not pretty enough. I'm sorry. And from that moment, her, she spirals down, and eventually she ends up in jail. And um, when she's in jail she starts to see that, in fact, she's privileged. She got an education. She can read and write. And the women that she's in jail with, for the most part, had none of that. So she begins to teach them. And when she leaves and she's able to, to come back into, the, into society, she interviews for a job. And it's a job at an organization in the Bronx where they help, it's called uh, the College and Community Fellowship Program. And she interviews there, and the woman says, well, Vivian, what are you, what's your ideal job? And she said, well, someday it would be, I'd like to be in your position. And lo and behold, today she is the executive director of that organization, which helps formerly incarcerated women get college degrees and jobs. So my point is, is there's that moment when somebody who's completely down and out, living in, I mean, in jail for three years, for God's sakes, but she feels lucky. And so that's what happens almost to a T to each one of these people. There's a moment. There's there's that defining moment, as you say, and I I was thinking of one of the other stories about the, uh, well, she's from California or from Mexico, Susan. Oh, yeah, Susanna Deanda. Yeah, and the... And, She's, okay, so Susanna is the, the daughter of Mexican immigrants who were Mexican farm laborers. Very tight family. She lost her father when she was sick and by, six, and by the time she's 11, her mother dies. And before she dies, she tells, her, and she tells Susanna and her brother, you must get an education. So Susanna went to uh, UCLA Santa Barbara, and she was in a class, by the way, devastated, still, still by the loss. I mean, they were orphans. And 
she's in class, and it's an environmental science class, and the professor is talking about the lack of clean water, actually, the fact that there's toxic water in the United States of America, uh, drinking water, in the San Joaquin Valley of California, and she gets that aha moment where she says, I'm looking around in my class, and there's nobody who looks like me here. But the people that are being most affected by the polluted water supply, the toxic water supply in the San Joaquin Valley, are people who look like me. They're my people. And lo and behold, she becomes, that's her moment, but she says, I have to do something about this. And today she is an advocate and an activist um, working on behalf of the people in that valley to see that they get what is a basic human right, clean water. And, you know, Jill, I, after reading her story, I guess and i ignorant about it. I did not realize how, I didn't realize, I guess, the, the, the lack of clean water, how that, you know, existed in California. I didn't I, I either. Just, yeah. It's the United States of America. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Because, you know, I, I mean, clean water, and that's one of the big issues, obviously, around the world and, and providing clean water to developing countries and all that, but California. And one of the things that she said was, which was interesting, I thought, when they decide to, this, you know, get, put uh, chemical factories or pesticides or in places where the water is going to be polluted, they do it in towns where there are people of color or there are Catholics, yeah. people who will not complain about it. It's extraordinary, right? Uh-huh. I mean, these, we're talking about issues of the, about the people getting jobs at the national level and a very, you know, we have serious problems, but these, this is unknown. This is really unknown that this exists, that these conditions exist for people in America. We know about our, that there are schools that are terrible, but I mean, and, and there she is coming basically from, I mean, she was an orphan. And this is what she's doing. So you and have all of these people who don't have clean water. I mean, this is California, who have to, they had dirty water from the tap, and then the other water that they have to buy, that we buy, middle class people buy, or, uh, you know, they, they have to pay for it, which they can't. So there really isn't clean water available. And her, she partnered with someone else, the Water Girls, that's what they're called? Yes. <laughs> she partnered with somebody whose last name is Firestone. She's not a Firestone of the Firestone family, by the way. I asked that. But um, Laurel is her name, Laurel Firestone. And uh, together they're taking on this issue and um, teaching people how to advocate and become activists. Great story. I mean, they're all. Each one of these stories is very special. Um, we have a couple minutes left. Uh, I don't know if we have time for another story, but I do want listeners. They can what uh, the website that they can go to is heartsonfire.com. Yeah, it's actually there's a Hearts on Fire jewelry company. So we had heartsonfirebook.com. www.heartsonfirebook.com. And I have very good news. We self-published. And as of yesterday, it's official. Random House has bought the rights to Hearts on Fire, and it will be in bookstores everywhere. Oh, congratulations. We, yeah, it's very, very, very exciting. They get it. They and get it. Yeah, they do. And um, we're, we're all thrilled, and they will be helping get the word out and get the book out. And there is, you can get it. Um, it there, it's in e-book book form now, but they're going to actually add to it and put videos on of these people and their work, and it's very, very exciting. 
Well, you've done great work, and and I just want to also mention one other thing, because people like more information, because if you at the end of each one of of the stories or of each one of these individual stories, you have specific organizations that kind of are related to the work that they do if anybody wants to get involved or find out more information. So you... Absolutely. Yep. And they can all go to the websites of the people in the book and help them out in any way they want, they, they, they would like, or just get involved, figure out what you care about, you know? And for me, it's I care about the people who are doing this extraordinary work. So my choice, I decided to tell the stories. I hope I can continue to do so. And, and Catherine, thank you for this wonderful opportunity. Well, thank you. It's been great having you on the show. And again, congratulations, Random House. They made a good decision, a great decision. Um, and I'll mention, I want to mention the book's title one more time, Hearts on Fire. This is the story of 12 stories of today's visionaries, Igniting Idealism into Action. Jill Iskell, and we didn't actually mention your co-author, Peter Cookson. Fabulous. And, uh, thank there you. is a forward by President Bill Clinton. Thanks so much, Jill. I thank you for the opportunity yep. again. Be well. Okay. Uh, well, our next guest is waiting for us, but we're going to take a short break, and it's Dr. Stan Tatkin. He is a psychologist. He's, his new book is called Wired for Love, How Understanding Your Partner's Brain and Attachment Style Can Help You to Defuse Conflict and Build a Secure Relationship. So what better person to have on for Valentine's Day? Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And by the way, I forgot to mention in the beginning of the show, you can listen to us every week live. We are live this, on, uh, at uh, 10 o'clock Eastern Time. But uh, we are, at the end of the day, archived, so you can pull up any one of our shows. And listen to me on Thursdays uh, on WCDB-FM 90.9 in Albany, New York. That's in Albany, New York, and that's also live on an FM station at the U- University at Albany. And we are also archived as well. So uh, we'll take a short break right now, and uh, don't go away. We'll be back with Dr. Stan Tatkin. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Grow Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. 
Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zotz, your social worker with the microphone. You are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. Stan Tatkin, a psychologist and uh, has an MFT. I get marriage and family therapy. He's a clinician, a researcher, a teacher, and a developer of the psychobiological approach to couples therapy. Um, he uh, also teaches and supervises psychology students at Kaiser Permanente in Woodland Hills, and that's in California, and his new book is called Wired for Love, How Understanding Your Partner's Brain and Attachment Style Can Help You Diffuse Conflict and Build a Secure Relationship, a perfect guest for Valentine's Day. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Dr. Tatkin. Thank you, Catherine. Relationship expert. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, I think that we all struggle with relationships, probably it's just, you know, just part of the human condition, and so I think it's really important to obviously have you on the show and talk to us to give us some, your book, Wired for Love, how do we understand, you know, you say, how do we understand our par- our partner's brains, uh, that's really difficult to do, and attachment style so that we can kind of, you don't say get rid of conflict, but diffuse conflict and build a secure relationship, how do we do that? Well, first of all, this, this approach really is focused on infant attachment, <clears throat> infant and adult attachment, but also on uh, on the nervous system and how the brain develops and how, and and especially on biology. Um, you know what really happens to people when they pair bond. Really, really happens to people when they fall in love, and uh, and and why do some relationships thrive and others don't? Okay, uh, let's so, take that because why some thrive, why others don't. And you, I guess, are taking it back to the relationship that the infant had with her mother or his mother or whoever the primary caregiver was. Yeah. Well, part of it is part of it is that. I mean, if if uh, if people come from a what's called a secure background, basically they had families that uh, that cared a great deal or, or focused on the relationship more than other things, more than the self, more than performance, more than being right, more than other things. Um, and uh, apart from secure attachments, uh, insecure attachments, the focus is on other things too much uh, where the relationship suffers. The relationship is not as important as self-interests. So these, these backgrounds, these childhood backgrounds, tend to be based too much in unfairness, injustice and, and sensitivity. So that's one aspect uh, of how people come to the table in adult romantic relationships. But the other part has to do with biology, has to do with two nervous systems either getting along or not getting along. 
Um, and even though the, the book is called Wired for Love, uh, our brain is wired for war, actually, uh, more than it is for love. It's much easier for us to pick up cues of threat in another person than it is to pick up friendliness. So this is one of the problems that people get into uh, when they uh, start to depend on each other on, uh, uh, to regulate one, in, uh, one another. They're either very good at it or they're not so good at it. So how do we, if that's part of our evolutionary, I guess, what, development, so that we protected ourselves, so we're very conscious, we are, we're prepared for war, prepared to protect ourselves, to fight, be aggressive, I guess? It's either so, fight or flee or, in some cases, collapse. Yeah, which is what happens in relationships, <laughs> right? Which was, happens in, in all relationships, but, but the main relationship it happens, the, the main uh, relationship that is probably the most powerful, uh, and that is the primary adult romantic relationship. That's the one where people are, are really proxies, you know, representatives of everybody who came before, uh, making it a very powerful relationship, uh, one that can actually heal the past, and do remarkable things or obviously could make things much worse, too. So how do we get over that kind of, <clears throat> I'm using the word aggressive, but you know that when, you know, when we get involved in, a very, in an intimate relationship or a relationship, a close relationship that we're ready to, to fight, we're ready to engage in conflict. So how do we kind of, if, if we're hardwired for that, I don't know if that's the right term, but how do we not do that? I think by taking responsibility for... Uh, first of all, uh, you know, our impact on our partner. What we like people to do in this, in this work is to pay attention to each other very closely uh, to, to one another's face, uh, eyes, voice, body. Uh, and, and when there is uh, a look of concern, a look of fear, a look of distress, that the other partner is very quick to uh, make adjustments or make corrections or fix or repair if necessary. That, that, that partners uh, learn how to operate each other properly, um, that they know what the other is going to do. They know how to move each other around without using fear or threat. They know how to use friendliness when necessary. And their fighting is more like rough-and-tumble play than it is war. Um, so it, it, fighting is normal. Conflict is normal. This, this uh, business about uh, being threatened every now and then is also normal. It's just how good are our partners at noticing it in the other person and making corrections very quickly. Well, can you give us an example, Doctor, how, how we do, like a, a specific, a clinical example, you know, put this into, give us a, an example of a couple, and a typical situation that couples get into where they end up fighting and battling or where they may end up in therapy with you because it's something that's ongoing and threatens their relationship. Well, there's there's two there's two major possibilities. I mean, everybody comes in with concerns about money, time, sex, mess, and kids. I mean, those are the the main concerns that people come in complaining about. But what actually happens uh, in in therapy by the time people get to us, they're either, as I mentioned before, operating in a in a mindset in a system that is a one person system. In other words. Uh, it's good for me, but it doesn't have to be good for you. And, and this comes from that insecure background, you know, uh, that was basically unfair. And they bring that to the table, and they expect it to work, and, of course, it's never going to work, and then the relationship erodes. So that's one scenario. Uh, okay, but give us a presenting problem, like, you know, couple number one, Sally and Jane come into your office, the other complaining about uh, uh, money. 
but what what do they what would be what would be the presenting problem? Okay, let's say they're let's say they're they're complaining about money, uh, but the way they talk to each other uh, as they're talking um, isn't isn't one that's collab- It's not a collaborative way. They don't talk in terms of making sure that both uh, are okay. Even though they're talking about money, it's not about money. So one is is saying something, trying to advance his argument, uh, and isn't noticing that she is uh, uh, that she's struggling. Uh, because she thinks that he is trying to take something away from her. Um, he doesn't do anything to reassure her. He doesn't do anything to wag, you know, to, to wave a flag of friendliness to her to make sure that she's okay. Um, she, she hears his voice and she anticipates something that uh, he's going to uh, have to win. And so she now uh, signals back to him that she's not going to give him no way, no how, and she starts to fight. Um, uh, what happens is that uh, uh, these two people start to see threat in each other's faces, and they start to anticipate, based on history, what's going to happen. And before they even know it, they're in a fight uh, for their lives. But uh, uh, that's the problem. Neither are really saying things like, you know what, um, you know, I love you, I understand your position, I know, I, know what you, I know what you think I'm trying to take advantage of you right now, but I really not. I adore you, you're the love of my life, but this is the way I want it to be. This is, uh, this is how I think we have to do this. And so that there's this mix going back and forth of, of uh, fighting, uh, but making sure that, that both people are in a, a zone where they can actually think. You know, when we get too excited we lose the ability to think. When we get too depressed, we lose the ability to think. And if we want to advance our ideas when we're trying to, to, to get uh, uh, our interests moved forward, uh, we have to do it through uh, a, a way that makes sure that our partner is in a zone where there's enough oxygen and glucose going to the brain where they can actually function. Um, uh, and so what happens is that people get excited very quickly based on history they think they know what they're uh, going to do. They think they know wh- why they're doing what they're doing, and we don't, actually. And then they're off and running. So that's, a, that's a kind of an example of how people could uh, say things to each other, um, make moves uh, of friendliness um, that suggests, you know, the relationship is not in trouble. We're okay. Um, um, I may be mad as hell at you, but uh, I adore you. Uh, you know, this kind of skill um, a lot of people really need to learn, and, and many people have never seen it in their parents. And so it's very so hard. it makes it more difficult for them. And, of course, I would imagine if difficult. you have one couple who has one half of the couple who has seen it, who is secure and is with somebody who's or had a secure relationship with, their, with the, their, the person who was their primary caretaker, and the right. other one didn't, uh, then you... What happens? You have to teach the the one who well, really is. Yeah, oftentimes um, I, I'd like to make a distinction between uh, you know people who are secure in the infant sense um, and people who make a relationship that is secure functioning. It is entirely possible; uh, otherwise, nobody would be in a secure functioning relationship. For two people who are insecure to make a secure functioning relationship. So we have to distinguish between those two. We're, um, we're advocating secure functioning relationships, not that people change um, who they are. That means that 
uh, people base the relationship on true mutuality. In other words, we understand that we have to be good stewards of, this, of our safety and, and security. Otherwise, neither of us thrive. So there's a, there's a sense of fairness and mutuality uh, and sensitivity because we depend on each other. So we make agreements. Uh, we protect each other in private and in public. Um, we uh, make use of each other throughout the day and tether ourselves to one another. We take seriously uh, separations and reunions. Um, we're the go-to people for everything. In other words, uh, we really make use of each other uh, as, as two people who can do things for one another that other people really wouldn't want to do because it's a burden. You know, people are, you know, this business of primary attachment relationship is burdensome which is why it evens out if we're both doing for each other what is good for both of us. Yeah, so, it's, yeah go ahead. No, it's, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's an emotional and physical and all-consuming investment, but it's, as you say, if you do it, and both of you do it, both partners do it, then you know, it's a win-win situation. I had a personal example, and I think I did a good job, I'm going to ask you, but okay. <laughs> I had a, a partner, and he and I have been together for 25 years, Wow. And I think, you know, in terms of you just described your ten scientific principles, which are in the book, which help couples to, to form this kind of a positive relationship, but we were at a dinner party uh, a couple nights ago, and we were sitting fairly close together, and he was talking to a woman, and I'm listening to her, and he was telling a story that I know he has told her at least five times. Uh-huh. And, my, and, and my immediate response, that kind of like was to say, you know, you've told the story, what, and, and saying it in front of other people. And at least to the people at the other at the ta- end of the table we were at would hear it. And I wanted to say, you know, you've already told her that story, and it's kind of, and I didn't. I, right. you know, I sort of I held back and I didn't say anything. And I actually was going to say tell him that when we got home, and I decided not to. I still haven't, so I'm announcing it to the world right now. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I, well, you're the psychologist. I had to get it out. But it was kind of an example of what you're talking about. I really felt combative. I wanted to say just stop, and I didn't. And then I'm glad that I didn't. And, um, you know, now it's, it's kind of dissipated, especially since I just told you. But is that an example? I mean, it sounds like a small thing, but it could have erupted into a big battle when we got home. Well, it, it, it could because, you know, this is about, uh, uh, you know, both of you protecting each, other's, uh, uh, protecting each other in public and, uh, and, and, and being good caretakers of each other. But, I, but, you know, there are things like that. You know, people are annoying. Uh, people don't realize this, uh, and, and they get upset <laughs> uh, as if they expect that people aren't going to be annoying. People are, are very annoying, um, but they shouldn't be dangerous. Uh, in, in a love relationship. That, that said, uh, people are going to annoy each other all the time. Uh, and it's very uh, important, again, putting the relationship first to make sure that, that, uh, that both are taking care of each other. That, that said, you know, I think it's totally fair to say, you know, it kind of bugs me when you do this all the time at home or in the car. Uh, that's, that's a worthwhile thing, I think, to say. Uh, but uh, but, of course, in public, um, not only would it be harmful for the partner, but it actually um, it wouldn't make uh, the couple look very good. Uh, kids and other people really like couples, well, they like couples, but they like couples to take care of each other properly. And nobody really wants to have that feeling of, uh-oh, um, when they're with uh, two people who are supposed to be taking good care of each other. So it's good that you held back. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's what I was waiting for. <laughs> yeah. I needed that to be validated. You know, yeah, you that's very good. I would, if I were your part, I'd very appreciate it. But I'd also appreciate you telling me, you know, enough with the story. Yeah. <laughs> it's enough. And now I can say it because, well, of course, my emotions have dissipated, too. You know, if you stand back and you wait and then there's time in between, I can say yeah. it, in a, as you, I think, described earlier, in a, in a much more non-emotional, combative. It's not going to be combative. It's just going to be talking. And when we're talking, I can bring it up, but in a, in a non-toxic situation, I think, which is really important. You mentioned what I'm kind of, one of the things that um, you, you talk about is um, avoid, I'm just curious what this is. You say avoid digital fighting. What, what is digital fighting? <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of people, you know, today everyone is, is using, uh, in, uh, you know, uh, social media, uh, texting, uh, tweet, uh, tweeting, and so on. All that is very good. I mean, it really has some very positives. My wife and my daughter and I, we, we, we text pictures to each other, goofy picture, uh, pictures to each other every day. And it's a way to stay connected, and, uh, uh, and we, we all love it. But partners should not, um, should not uh, talk about things that would be upsetting or difficult uh, areas of importance. They should not do that on text or even on the phone. And I'd even, even add to that, not in the car uh, driving while facing forward. And this is because when we are under threat or stress, we need to make eye contact. We need to be face-to-face in a relatively close distance, and we need to see a moving picture as we're talking. If we don't have that, then the possibilities for going off the rails and making mistakes increase tenfold. So not, and and uh, should be said, too, that when we are not face-to-face and we're parallel, uh, the brain actually picks up more threat um, uh, because we, we have a problem with faces at a glance and at a side. So I really, really encourage people, even though they think that's the last thing they want to do, is to, uh, is to face off um, and to see each other's eyes while they're getting into conflict for two reasons. One, because uh, that's how uh, uh, they can see what is going on moment by moment and make adjustments. Uh, uh, and also they're going to be less threatened. You know, when you're not looking at somebody, um, you're looking at something, and you're, what you're looking at is a, is a picture, uh, probably an archived picture of that person or situation, and it's not going to be very positive. It's going to keep you riled up. So, yeah, save your, save your important discussions for face-to-face. And make that's them short. An I want to, that's an interesting point because I guess I hadn't really thought about it in that way. It's true. If you are not facing, let's say they're even sitting in the back seat of the car and you're arguing. That's right. Uh, it's, it's like you, yeah, you, you perceive a threat that may not be there. And also, this, I want to kind of maybe just say this again for listeners, but also if you're looking at somebody, you really are more in tune with, let's say you're saying something that's nasty or hurtful. You can you look at this person and you see how it's affecting them. If you And you, you know, can go, uh-oh. Uh, yeah. I've got, I, you know, you can step back, and if you don't see that, then you may not do that, and you can, I, I yeah, that's... That's the way it works. If you watch, if you watch um, um, animals rough and tumble play, um, you know, mammals, they always keep their eyes on each other. This, this enables the, uh, the play state to continue. We, we watch each other, and we're able to read each other in real time, and if we're good at that, uh, and there's ways to get good at that, we can make us error corrections very quickly and keep each other from going to war. Um, we can't do that if we don't have the eyes. So this doesn't. This not only would work for couples, but this works in terms of your relationship with your children as well. Absolutely. Yeah. 
and the, I would add the other thing here, and this is really important, Catherine, is that um, when people are in distress, uh, that's not the time to use long sentences and paragraphs and to, and to start talking a great deal. That's the time to just say it um, and pull out, uh, say something nice, say it again, pull out. In other words, tensing and relaxing. You never want to go in and start talking a lot to a person who's in distress or near in distress because their arousal climbs. For children, they feel trapped, and it's blah, blah, blah. Um, but for, for adults, it is too. Um, we like, uh, w- when we're calm and happy, we, we mind long discussions and talks. But when we're in distress, uh, it, needs to be, uh, it needs to be brief, and it needs to be mixed with friendliness of some kind. So you know that thing that we talked about? I need to talk about it again, the money thing. Um, and I see that you start to get upset. Um, so we're going to have to talk about it. So what are you going to have for dinner? change the subject about that money thing so we go in and we go out uh, of these discussions tensing and relaxing never giving um, each other the feeling that we're going to be trapped or uh, run over or have to give up our position or uh, you know what I'm saying, or overwhelmed and that's the okay. same with kids or cornered I, you know as you're just talking I'm thinking you know you don't want to feel like someone has you in a corner and there's exactly. no way out and right so, yeah right. Because that's what, yeah. But what, okay, so now we've said all this, or you've said all this, and you've said it in your book, but given that, uh, we seem not to be able to do that as a society, as a culture, because 50% of us get divorced and, and then remarry, and then another, I think 60% of those marriages end up in divorce. At least those statistics are pretty close. So how, why are we not, let me ask you, why are we not doing this? I think, I think part of the reason is that um, people did not see good relationships. Their, their parents do it right um, uh, in childhood. So they don't have a model of it. The other reason, I think, for the problems with the remarriages is something we, we call mismanagement of thirds. Uh, and this is where people don't understand the primacy of that relationship that they now get into, that it has to be protected. Um, partners cannot be relegated to third wheel. And what happens with, uh, with a lot of people who get married over and over again, and, and they have more children and they have more uh, people involved, is that they, they don't seem to learn their lesson. Uh, they continue to allow third people, third things, to interfere with the primary uh, uh, romantic relationship and too often throw their partner under the bus. Um, when this happens, when, when uh, either partner becomes a third will, um, it's only a matter of time and that relationship will degrade. Uh, it, this is why it's called a primary romantic partnership. Um, it's primary because those partners are king and queen of the land. And, uh, and neither of them, because this goes back to childhood, expect to be pushed out of that dyad um, too much of the time. So uh, th- th- this is what I see, at least in my practice, people making the same mistake over and over again. Um, if you get married, you have a partner. Um, there's a reason for doing that. Um, it serves both of you. Uh, you have to be very careful about uh, third people, things, tasks, intruding on that partnership in a way uh, that alienates or marginalizes the other. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, and I know you're an expert in mindfulness, and we really do have to be mindful of that because I, I, I think that is 
one of the the key or one of the one, uh, really that's a problem because we let yes. the kids get in the way. Your girlfriend's um, from a woman's perspective, you know, your girlfriend's, your activities, your work, and you figure, well, he's always going to be there and he'll understand, and you know, always making those kinds of excuses. And that person, who's your primary person, becomes your tertiary person, and that's, that's not right. a good thing. But, you know, it's Valentine's Day, and we only have a few minutes left, so, you yeah. know, I think this whole Valentine's thing is kind of like a, a farce in a way, because it's it's the, you know, you think, I was at the flower store yesterday, and there are all these men there, you know, frantically buying flowers, <laughs> and candy, and right. whatever, makeup, and jewelry, and but that's just, I mean, that's easy. I mean, it's really easy to just go out and buy a $10 flower arrangement, or more, if that's what you want to do. Uh, what we're talking about is really the hard stuff, and so this like yes. we have these kinds of like ritualistic stuff that I don't think necessarily is such, or maybe we don't do it in a in a positive way. So um, I probably shouldn't say that on Valentine's Day, but um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean that's I, I, easy to do. Yeah, you know there 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 are probably more breakups on Valentine's Day than any other holiday, and there's a reason for that, and that is because. Uh, people wait for that special day to do what they should be doing every day, all day, and uh, and they accrue this this feeling of not being uh, loved or cherished, and uh, and the the possibility f- for being disappointed on that day uh, is very high. So, it really, Valentine's Day and what goes on is really a daily activity, um, not just on a one one day thing. Uh, people should be uh, amplifying each other. Uh, daily, regularly, by telling one another spontaneously, God, I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so lucky um, that I'm with you. Um, uh, you, you know, and look into each other's eyes and leave each other's note, uh, each other notes. But in particular, do the things that actually work for your partner, not the things that work for you, but the things that work for your partner. Um, I, then I think Valentine's Day would become irrelevant because, uh, you know, it, it, it's not just one day where you show your love for your partner. Uh, it's really every day. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think one of your ten scientific principles about how to get along, as we've been talking about throughout the the, the show, I, I mean, you say you have to create different rituals to be together every single day, bedtime, morning, uh, you know, other kinds of times that you set aside so that you can stay connected, and that should be done every day, every week, every month, not just yeah. once a year. Yeah. And if people don't have the time because they're very, very busy, which most of us are, um, at least the nighttime and morning should be protected because those are two very important times of the day for kids and for adults. Um, those are, you know, those are uh, separations and reunions, and uh, and a lot of people don't put each other to bed at night and don't wake up together. Yeah, and you say don't have the time. Actually, we all have the same amount of time. It's how we decide to spend that time, isn't it? We have. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Yeah. So we do have the time. Um, or we have to decide that we want to spend that time with our partner if we want to have a, a good, positive relationship. Um, we have a couple minutes left. want to mention the book again, Wired for Love, How Understanding Your Partner's Brain and Attachment Style Can Help You Diffuse Conflict and Build a Secure Relationship. We've been talking to Dr. Stan Tatkin. He's author of Wired for Love, and you can go online. Uh, buy the, you can get the book at bookstores everywhere online as well. Amazon and bookstores everywhere, Barnes and Noble. And if they want to uh, to find me, they can go to www.stantatkin.com. Great, thanks so much for being on the show today, Dr. Tatkin. 
Thank you, Catherine. Take care. Have a good day. Yeah. Yep. We're going to say goodbye. I hope you had a good time today. I did. Enjoyed my guests. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show. And as you know, I am your social worker with the microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.